Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. So what we're going to be talking about, chapter 18 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Today we're going to talk about assurance of grace and salvation. Uh, And this is going to be an interesting one because I think that... uh, Those of us that are in Christ have all struggled over this at some point. Your assurance. So, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you um, in need of uh, enlightenment and the work of your word and the work of those that you used as an instrument to... um, to summarize your word for us here. And so, so Lord, we pray for wisdom. We pray that you would give us uh, understanding and knowledge. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay. So, uh, there's two different uh, kinds of um, assurance issues that I have seen. There might be more. But these are the two I would like to talk about today. Um, The first is, uh, comes from people that have no problem believing in God and the Bible and what the Bible says about God and all those sort of things, but their, their lack of assurance happens when they think about whether they particularly are saved. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's no issue with believing the Bible. There's no issue with believing that there really is the God of the Bible that exists. Their problem is, am I personally saved? The other uh, group are people that have a hard time believing that God exists. Um, They don't question whether if this God exists, then yes, the promises would be true and my salvation certainly would be assured, but their struggle is, is is the God of Scripture really in existence or am I, is all this just humans and um, organisms that have gained the ability to think? And we made it all up to comfort ourselves until we disappear after we die. Okay, now that sounds kind of dark. And it doesn't sound like something that a Christian would think. But I think that is a struggle that many Christians have that don't, that don't talk about it. So you have these two different kinds of, of struggles with faith. So how many of you know of someone that has struggled with one of these two, okay? How many of you know of someone that struggled with, they may, uh, they believe that, you know, the God of the Bible, they don't have a problem with that, they don't have a problem with believing uh, in scripture and all those sort of things, but they have a hard time believing that maybe they would be saved and they struggle over that. How many know someone that was like that? Okay. How many know of someone that their struggle wasn't necessarily whether they were saved or not. The struggle was 
you know, struggling over whether God really is there. Okay? Not as many, but they're there. When we, when we struggle over unbelief, uh, unbelief takes different forms, and we're going to discover this as we go through the Westminster Confession of Faith. And what I want to do is I want to really uncover these struggles we have because the Westminster Confession of Faith is very helpful in um, getting to that root issue of, of, our, of our, if I can put it this way, lack of faith. Okay. So if you look on your sheet, um, let's look at uh, the Article 1. Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and the estate of salvation, which hope uh, of theirs shall perish, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may, in this life, be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So here we have uh, two groups being uh, er, contrasted. One group is the group of hypocrites and unregenerate people that call themselves Christians and are trying to find some kind of hope, right? So we have, uh, you know, I don't want to get all political, but they are good examples. Uh, Pelosi is a Catholic, right? And Biden is a Catholic? Yeah. In fact, uh, the... uh, this is why I just, it's really, I think it would be really hard to be a conservative Catholic these days because you have to buy into the Pope. <laughs> and this Pope, woo, this is a bad Pope. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just the good Popes. But I mean, in the, in the past, you had at least some kind of conservative Popes. Uh, but this Pope, man, he's just, he wants to burn it all down. And, you know, that's fine. Um, but, uh, but there has been some bishops that have said we shouldn't give them the sacraments, uh, Pelosi and Biden. They shouldn't be given the sacraments uh, since they go against Catholic teachings that you shouldn't murder people, um, particularly babies, um, and that homosexuality is a sin. They don't believe that, obviously. And so these things go against, and they're unrepentant of this, and so there's some bishops out there who say, hey, uh, somewhere along the line, I thought we had these uh, doctrines. Uh, let's go ahead and keep those. Um, but the Pope says, nope, uh, I will punish you. So in that case, what you have are people that are trying to use Christianity as a way to make them be able to sleep at night to, uh, to soothe their conscience uh, when they sleep at night, but in the end, uh, there is no hope for them. Their hope will perish, right? 
And that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about, the yet, we're talking about this, these are the people that can truly be assured and enjoy their assurance. And it lists off three different things um, that are very helpful. Those that can truly enjoy assurance um, are people that truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, condition number one. People that love him in sincerity, condition number two. And they endeavor to walk in all good conscience before the Lord, number three. So number one, they believe. Number two, they love. And number three, they are in a constant daily walk in good conscience with God. And that's what they endeavor to do. Now I say that because this is the part that will help us understand the two groups we talked about at the beginning. Those that have no problem believing in Scripture and God, but they question their own salvation, and then those that don't have a problem believing that if there is a God, then all those other things are in line, they're just having a hard time believing in God. And when I say that, I know it sounds like I'm speaking of an unbeliever, but when, I, when we talk about our difficulty in our beliefs and our faith. There are those that have difficulty and they struggle with these kinds of thoughts. So those that truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, that was condition number one. Of the two groups that I mentioned, which are having a hard time believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? The ones that have a difficulty believing they are saved or the ones that are having a difficulty believing in God? One or two? <laughs> okay, kind of, yeah. There's some truth to that. But I would say those that struggle over their, their um, belief in God are struggling over their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, because over and over in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, but even in the Old, there is that pointing to the Son, who is a direct reflection of the Father, that every other religion denies the Son, right? If you are a Muslim, you are rejecting the Son of God as God. If you are a Mormon, you are rejecting the Son of God as God. And that includes talk show hosts that you might like, right? What is his name? The Glenn Beck, yes. Um, and this includes... Jewish uh, believers, or Jewish people as well, like uh, Ben Shapiro. So all your, <laughs> your favorite conservative talk show hosts, uh, not all, but you know, those main ones are rejecting Jesus Christ as God. I say that because uh, people, um, this is where that work is when we talk about being a Christian and talking about knowing the way, 
usually people are having um, a conflict with Christ. Now, what about those that have a hard time believing they themselves are saved? Which of these three do they end up having a hard time with? Belief in Jesus, love of Jesus, or walking with a clear conscience? What was that? Okay, yeah. Um, typically, people that struggle over this um, are either struggling, and we're going to see this later in, in, um, in the next couple articles, but sometimes they're either struggling with a sin that they cannot get victory over or will not, or uh, they are not understanding how to love their God. On Friday Night Bible Study, we talked about this a little bit. Friday Night Bible Study, we talked about the fact that the church is called to declare uh, the mystery of God, which is Christ, and hit the way he has brought the Gentiles in, and to declare this to uh, the powers and principalities that we can't see. And you wouldn't believe how boring that is to us because that's not very interesting to us. It's not interesting to us because we care about what we can see, and we don't care about what we can't see, and oftentimes it's because we don't love the same things that God loves because we haven't loved him. And so we have a, especially in our denomination, we have a easy time with knowledge but a hard time understanding how that knowledge converts itself into loving our God better. And so that's one of the things we're going to talk about in these articles. So with those three things in mind, let's go to Article 2. This certainty, okay, the certainty of your salvation and God being the God of your salvation. This certainty is not a bare conge conjectural, oh goodness. It's a hard word to say, I, I keep miss saying it every time I, I read it. Can someone help me? Conjectur conjectural, Con conjectural, that still sounds weird, there's a, yeah, this sounds weird to me. Okay, it's not conjecture. <laughs> that sounds weird too. Um, and it's not just a probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope. But your certainty ought to be grounded in an infallible assurance of faith, founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation and the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made. The testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our, spirit, our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the, the earnest of our inheritance. In other words, he was given as 
a down payment for our inheritance whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. So the Spirit is our sealing and the witness of what is to come as we are children of God. Now, this comes down to all of that uh, is, is part of the promises that our hope should be grounded in. Typically, what do we want to ground our certainty in when it comes to our salvation or that there is a God that has given us our salvation? What is our desire for our certainty to be grounded in? Our carnal desire. Feelings? Good works? It's a question I ask my unbelieving students when I taught in secular colleges and universities. I would ask them, how many in here do not believe in God? Lots of hands went up. So then I would say, so what do you want? What would be the, the thing that you would say, yep, definitely a God? And it all came down to something they could see, right? And I would say, well, you'd want to believe in a God that's all-powerful, right? And I, yeah, yeah. So they all bought into that. And I said, so if he just showed himself, you would all just disintegrate, right? Yeah, that makes sense. So what, what would you want? Uh, him to come in the form of something you could see? Like, yeah, yeah. Well, what would that be? Like a person? Yeah, okay. <laughs> they just fall for it every time. I said, all right, but he would just look like one of you. So what would he, he would have to do some kinds of stuff that no one else could do. And then they're like, yeah, like, like miracles. And they're like, oh. <laughs> I know what you're doing. And Judas was right next to him, right? Judas saw the miracles, saw the God-man on earth, understood all the prophecies were being fulfilled by, by this man. And was it enough for Judas? No. No. It wasn't enough. You know, I think about this a lot because I think, you know, when you see these men... Um, when uh, Christopher Hitchens, do you guys know who Christopher Hitchens is? He was a famous atheist who went around and, um, and would debate Christians. Pretty smart guy. Um, and the Christians didn't always win those debates. I know the Christians wanted to think we did, but some of those, they talked themselves into some corners they couldn't get out of. And uh, very smart guy, and then was diagnosed it's a pretty serious condition that led to his death just a few years ago. And instead of having the news of his impending death be something that made him think, maybe I need to uh, change my thinking, right? Because it's easy when you're healthy and young to, be, to not care about God because you don't think you're going to die. You really don't. You kind of believe that's something other people do but not you, right? But then when you're confronted with your death, you would think, Christopher Hitchens would think, oh, wow, I need to get serious about whether there really is something out there. And you know what he said? He said, I really just hope I'm strong enough not to give in to that kind of thinking when I die. And he had friends that sat next to him at his deathbed that assured the world he did not give in. And he was sent straight to hell. 
And so I say that to say, what does it take to believe even if you were given all the evidence that made you feel certain about it? How many months did it take after 9-11 when everyone saw the planes hit the, hit the towers? You know, the credit was already given. We saw how they went through and, and were able to uh, get into those planes and fly them where they wanted to fly them. The whole plan was laid out and still they were putting out videos as how George W. Bush made all that happen. <laughs> George W. Bush, come on. Uh, I just, <laughs> even if he wanted to, I just don't think he'd pull it up. But I just think, you know, how long did it take before all the conspiracy theories came out as, oh, did you notice, you know, if a plane hit a tower, it would fall over this way, but it went straight down. Ah, oh, the government's blowing up those buildings. I mean, it was just ridiculous how fast uh, these Hollywood actors, you know, became the voiceovers for these ridiculous videos. Because seeing something isn't enough. And the certainty that we want, that feeling of I saw X or I felt Y and that's why I believe and I can hold on to that will never be enough for you. You think it will but it's a fallible hope. It's fallible because you're hoping that your interpretation of, your, of what you saw or heard was enough and all of that breaks down very quickly. But an infallible assurance of faith is founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. And we know when we hear the word promises, what we're really talking about is covenantal promises. The covenantal work of God and the conditions of his covenant will be seen. So what does it take for you to believe? What does it take for you to be certain? Because, you know, before I open that up to the, to the group, let me just help you understand certainty can be seen as a psychological condition, right? I always use, I try to work in Tom Cruise as many times as I can in my illustrations. Tom Cruise believes in Scientology, so he says. He might even be certain of it, but that's one crazy religion. But he's certain of it. Who's gonna say he's not certain, right? L. Ron Hubbard seems certain. Who's going to say he wasn't certain? There's people that are certain of a lot of things that aren't true. So is certainty merely a psychological condition or is certainty dependent, true certainty, the kind that actually matters, that goes deeper than whether I feel something about it or not, but comes down to the condition of the state of your soul? Is that kind of certainty possible? And when I ask my students this, even my unbelieving students this, they look at me and they want it. They want that kind of certainty. They're excited about it. And they say, well, then how? How is it going to work? And I say, it would take an act of God. And they think I'm just blowing them off. But I'm, I'm saying it will take an act of God. Look at Article 2. What's the act of God? Does anyone see it? 
If your assurance is going to depend upon the divine truth of the promises, the covenantal promises in salvation, what is the act of God that will make this happen for you? What was that? The work of the Spirit, that's right. The inward evidence of those graces upon which those, um, those promises you know, are conditioned is based on the testimony of the Spirit. That's the work of the Spirit, testifying with your spirit that you are the Son of God or daughter of God. And so this is a work that happens to you, with you, and you are, and for you, if I can put it that way, whereby you are sealed. Okay? Now, sometimes certainty needs explanation, right? For you to be certain of something, which means you need knowledge. Friday night Bible study, we're studying Ephesians. Those of you that have been coming, what were the Ephesians' problem? What didn't they have? Yeah, wisdom and knowledge. And what, 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 what's supposed to happen once they're given this wisdom and knowledge? Well, we haven't gotten to the last few chapters yet, so maybe you're like, I don't know. You'll have to tune in. <laughs> Yes, God will be glorified in the church. That's right. Real things happen. In other words, the, the knowledge does not remain a theory in your brain. It results in activity in your heart and glorification for God. If it remains a theory in your head, it requires sin to do so. And so that brings us to Article 3. This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be partaker of it, it being assurance. Yet, being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given to him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of ordinary means, attain thereunto. And therefore, it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. So, um, so far is it uh, from inclining men to looseness. In other words, this will lead you closer to obedience, not further away your assurance in other words assurance won't lead you to uh, well I got my ticket to heaven so I don't have to 
I don't have to worry about my obedience to God. Uh, the more you become assured, the more you enjoy your obedience and you engage in obedience, is what that's saying. Okay. Um, so when we look at this, there are some conditions here. Let me get to my right notes here. First of all, the infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict, uh, and con conflict with many difficulties before he be, be a partaker of it. In other words, just because you are struggling and you have conflict in your heart doesn't mean you have lost your faith. Doesn't mean you have to get re-saved. In fact, the, the, the idea that you are conflicted about it and you, have, you are fearful is a good sign that there is faith there. Otherwise, you would not be fearful. And sometimes it takes a while to be a partaker of this assurance. Yet, being enabled by the Spirit to know. So this is where we come to that knowledge not being something that sits in your brain or makes you feel smart, but actually is the active work of the Spirit to enlighten your mind that you may know about this God and about his salvation. And that without extraordinary revelation, uh, those of you that come from a charismatic background will know that sometimes in order to get people to feel more assured of their faith, extraordinary revelation is oftentimes used to make them feel this way. Sometimes it is through the, through the interpretation of tongues or whatever it might be. Uh, in some um, charismatic congregations, that's what occurs. Um, the right use, however, of ordinary means is how we attain this. What are ordinary means? What was that? Okay. Specifically for what you all are in a Reformed church, you hear this terminology a lot. What are, because you're on the right track, what are ordinary means of grace? What was that? Yeah. Yes, hearing the word preached, taking the sacraments, these are ordinary means. So it doesn't take this special dream where God appears to you and say, hey, I'm real, or hey, you really are saved, don't worry about it. But there's these ordinary means that God has put already into place that are sufficient for your knowledge of the spirit to work in your mind and heart. And so how important is it to be in church, according to this? Pretty important. Many of us, if we are honest with ourselves, the doubts we have, whether they are doubts of our salvation or doubts as to the existence of God himself, whatever our doubts are that come into our mind that we wrestle with, isn't it true that those doubts seem strongest when we have laxed on our 
on how serious we take our church attendance, how serious we take our sacrament taking, when we're waiting for minute, minutes before that bread and wine go into our mouth, we are starting our conversation with God about searching our heart. That's late to the game. And when we come to church, are we prepared for what God has given us through the servant that God has given us to preach to us? Have we prepared our heart? Do we come before what, um, do we come before our preaching and teaching here with a heart ready to listen? Or is it a heart already hardened? A heart that says, you know better than what you're hearing. You're smarter than what you're hearing. You're better than this. You don't have time for this. Or the haunting of your week becomes more important than what you're hearing from the pulpit. Or the delicateness of your heart to be offended is what you're hearing. Instead of thinking to yourself, my assurance relies on my heart set to this place. When I come and sit in the pew to listen to what Andrew is telling us, the way I have prepared my heart is part of what is going to give me assurance in my salvation and assurance of my God. When I prepare myself for the sacraments, that is part of what is going to bolster my assurance of these things. When you look at... Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, as far as what happens during communion, you will see that part of what happens during communion is that your faith is strengthened if you're doing it right. And so these ordinary means really are enough. But what we want is assurance in some other way. We want an appearance in a dream. We want something outside of this place to give us what we want. And isn't that always the way that Satan comes to us, right? Satan didn't come to Eve and say, you need to just reject God and walk away from God. No, he said, there's a better way to do what God wants you to do. God wants you to have knowledge. Here's a better way. Eat that fruit, and then you'll know as much as he does. I'm not telling you to reject God or even reject the things he wants of you. Here's just a better way to do it. It's your way. Take the fruit, and you can have fellowship with God in a better way because you'll know as much as he does. It'll be great. And we do this, right? We say, well, we want assurance, and Satan says, of course you want assurance, I mean, you're not going to get it at that church because, you know, you can't put up with that guy and, uh, you know, he's preaching to you and those people, you know, they're just kind of weird. Uh, don't worry about getting your assurance there. Get it somewhere else. I mean, there's some, there's some good podcasts that you can find your assurance on. There's a, there's a good preacher uh, online that will, that will help you get your assurance because, you know, he's so eloquent and, and that's where God wants you to get your assurance. And as we do that, we become estranged from the family 
and we become very close to something online that has no connection to humans. And so what we find is long before there was ever screens or screen time or anything like that, way back in the 1600s, they were seeing in Scripture that these, that these things, um, that people are going to be tempted to try and find their assurance somewhere outside of the church, outside of the word preached and the sacraments given and God's uh, given word to them. So that brings us to number four. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation. Um, oh, let me reread this. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation uh, diverse ways shaken. So in different ways, they might have their assurance of salvation shaken. It might be diminished. might be intermitted. As by negligence in preserving of it. By falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit. By some sudden or vehement temptation. By God's withdrawing the light of his countenance. And suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to, have some, and to have no light. Okay, let me just read that far. What were um, ways, different ways people have their assurance of salvation shaken? Did everyone catch all those different ways? What's one way? Okay, negligence in preserving it. We just kind of talked about that. One way to be negligent in preserving, preserving your assurance is your daily walk with God, the church, and your involvement in it. What's another one? Special a special sin that wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit. A constant sin might be someone that is that will not find victory over their uh, pornography problem. Might be someone who will not find victory over their pride problem, where they think they know better than everybody else. The pride issue is huge. If you walk through life where everyone's an idiot but you, where no one really understands things the way you understand them, it is the pride that leads young people into terrible relationships that ruin them. It is the pride that ruins relationships between each other in the congregation and makes people walk away for selfish reasons. It wounds and grieves. What's another one? What does it mean by this vehement temptation. What is that? It says sudden. 
It's a sudden powerful temptation that you weren't expecting. It could be a temptation that um, is a sin that you have been you've been cultivating that you didn't even you weren't really paying attention to. It could be something that from your past that you didn't know you were still tempted by, but something that suddenly grasp, grabs you. What about this one? By God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering where you feel like you're walking in darkness. Yeah, trials. A darkness of the mind where you just kind of feel lost and you feel like God is not there. These kinds of things. And here we have yet. Yet are they never utterly destitute, those who are the seed of God. And life of faith that love the Christ and the brethren, uh, the love of Christ and the brethren, that, sincere, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may, in due time, be revived. So there are times where there is a... Um, a darkness that we can go through. But there are promises in Scripture that tell us that this is a time, and in due time, you can be revived. And by the which, the, the, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. It will never bring you to utter despair, where you have no hope, no way out. That even through the times of darkness, um, there, there, are there are places that you can point to and say, God help me from utter despair here and here and here. So does this mean that in our walk, in our faith walk, in Christ, that there are going to be hard times, even times of suffering? even times of suffering that God may have afflicted us with. Is suffering something that we can get through? Is there, is there room for utter despair, utter despair in the Christian life? No. <laughs> right, it's never going to be utter, but there is room for despair, right? But it will never be utter despair. It'll be, it'll be for a time. And so this is what's difficult to, um, to help people understand, even whether they're young or old. Um, some people, and this is something that I've even wrestled with, shouldn't the one thing we have is assurance? Um, why does there have to be times where we, we waver in our assurance? And we're going to waver in our assurance because we are still sinful people and we live in a fallen world. You have to understand those two concepts. Most of the assurance that we struggle with is going to be because of our sin, because we still struggle with our sin. But there is still another part. Uh, we live in a fallen world. 
So some of our struggle with our assurance may not be mainly just sin, but it could be because of the fallen world we live in. The kind of work the Lord wants us to have and to be prepared for, and even his own afflictions upon us, might cause these things to happen. And so I say this because, and, and this is the drum I always keep beating, but I think I just, I just got to keep beating it, is we don't get to live in peace until Christ comes back. You don't get to sit back. You don't get to just sit and enjoy the victory until the victory is realized and fully realized when Christ comes back. Until then, we're at war. And although there are times, even during war, where you get to sit around with your buddies and make jokes and relax, that's fine, but you still know you're going back to the battle as soon as that time is over, right? Sunday sometimes can be that way, where we get to sit in the foxhole for a while together and enjoy each other and enjoy God's favor upon us, but we're going back out into the battle. You don't get to say we are done and our constant walk with the Lord is a walk in war, not in peace. And so if our mindset is, I want peace, we don't get it yet. And that shouldn't shake your, your faith. It shouldn't shake your assurance. Your assurance does not rely on how much peace you have in your life. Your assurance should rely on the promises that even in our warfare, we're going to be okay you will not be utterly destroyed. There's a lot of landmines, there's a lot of bombs coming, there's bullets flying, but none of those are for you. You will not utterly die. You will survive this war. Your body won't survive it, but you will. And so your assurance of God's grace and favor upon you should not be part of what is shaken even though we continue in our warfare. All right, we are out of time. Um, come up to me afterwards uh, if you have questions and we can talk about them. Let's prepare our hearts for the service. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for you being our Father and for you sending us our General, that he might be able to lead us through this warfare and that why we might be able to be secure in his promises, and that he has given us a spirit, the spirit, to comfort us and to help us be strong in this war. And Lord, we pray for us to be assured of those things. Let us do the work we are to do. Let us uh, not stray from the ordinary means that you've given us. Let us embrace our church and embrace your word as it is preached and the sacraments as they are given that we might be able to be secure in your salvation, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for today's service. Lord, bow our hearts before your word. Let us not come to your word proud. Lord, give the words that you will have for us and let them be spoken through Andrew that we might be both blessed and challenged. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.